Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's show, we chat to Bailey Richardson, co-author of Get Together, a guide to creating communities published by Stripe Press. Over the course of our conversation, Bailey talks us through her journey to writing the book, beginning with her mother's experiences as one of the few female pilots of her generation and her time with Facebook and Instagram, where she cut her teeth learning how online communities operate. We hear about the many and varied communities that Bailey, Kevin and Kai worked with in writing their book and we also get some practical advice that internet-first companies can use. If you enjoy my chat with Bailey, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing at iTunes, Overcast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, over to the studio. So Bailey, we're delighted to have you as guest here on Inside Intercom this week. Can you start us off by telling us just a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely. Well, just to go all the way back, I think the seed of the work that I do now is really informed, as I'm sure it is for many of us, by how I grew up. I grew up in a house with a mother who was the first luggage loader at San Jose Airport in Northern California. And she worked her way up to be one of United Airlines' first female pilots. So she was a captain uh, when there weren't very many women women flying airplanes. And I sort of grew up in this experience of being extremely proud of my mother and getting to tell people my mom had such a rad job. And also seeing on the other side what it looked like for her day in and day out. She had experiences where... People refused to taxi her airplane because she was a woman or just, you know, would have to spend five, six, sometimes 10 hours in a small cockpit with men who really didn't want her in there. And some passengers would tell her that they wouldn't have boarded the plane if they knew that a woman had been flying it. And so I saw what it was like for someone to be in a group of people or in an ex- in sort of a dynamic with groups of people that was really unwelcoming. And I think, you know, flash forward to when I'm 25, 26, I was one of the first five to 10 employees at Instagram. And we had this burgeoning community of people on the site, you know, people that would meet strangers online who also loved to surf or take mobile photos or, you know, loved French bulldogs. People were just connecting with each other in such a benevolent way through this platform. And sometimes it would, it would lead to people meeting up in person and doing these things called Instameets, where people would take photos with strangers, go for walks, take pictures of beautiful places. And I would attend some of those And there's no way I would have believed that people could treat strangers so kindly Hmm. if I hadn't actually gone to those Instameets and seen how when people connect through a passion, they can be so benevolent to one another. And so I I sort of saw both, you know, the, the negative side of how groups of people can treat each other by just watching how my mom was treated when I was younger and then got to see this complete reversal with, and I, and I just wondered, well, you know, what's the difference? Like, how do we make our relationships, our groups more welcoming, more benevolent, more positive, and have spent the last five years plus of my life since I left Instagram 
continuing to learn more about what I call communities, groups of people who keep coming together over something they care about and benevolent ones, ones where people are supportive of each other, people are non-judgmental, And that's, that's sort of my, my origin story, I suppose. That's a pretty powerful origin story that you saw your mother being pushed out of her own professional community and it kind of inspired you to want to help other people build theirs or even just build other communities in their life. So how did you first cross paths then with your your little community of co-authors mm. for your book? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I first started, I was on the Instagram team before we got acquired by Facebook. And when we got acquired, we were 13 people and, you know, mm-hmm. stepped into a company that was many years older than us about to go public, many more employees. And each of us were given, you know, a bunch of jobs to integrate into Facebook. And I was at the age of like 26, briefly in charge of international growth for Instagram. And I got to work with the international growth team for Facebook, which is At the time, it was, you know, one person working in Africa, one person working in Russia, one person working in Asia, and sort of these, this group of really smart, very self-initiated people who were responsible for taking Facebook, which was made primarily by Americans in America and bringing it to other parts of the world. And one of my business partners, Kai, was one of the people on the international growth team for Facebook. He ran Growth in Asia. And and honestly, we first just became friends through other interests. You know, we were, I love mm-hmm. to surf, he loved to surf. He was interested in photography. And slowly, I think he got closer to seeing the way that we approached building our community at Instagram And frankly, I think he started out as a skeptic. He grew, you know, he was in sort of that growth hacking space of like very quant, very data driven, um, high growth stage of a company. And I think I I just sort of won him over (laughs) about this, this community thing. And he saw in it sort of what I think he, he felt like growth had been 10 years ago, which was this thing that many in particular startups were trying to do with very little structure or framework. And he had been a part of really defining a a framework for how startups approach growth. And so I think he just got excited about how might we be able to take this word community and really break it down into clear actions and a clear framework so that we can demystify it and hopefully help more people invest in communities, whether online or off. So Kai and I met really originally through both working at at Facebook and Instagram. And then after I left Instagram, I I did a residency at a design agency here in the U.S. called IDEO. And it's a very human, it's like a human-centered design agency. So really involved in observing, researching, real world people moving through the world, kind of, and informing designs with that reality. And Mm -hmm. my business second business partner, Kevin, had just finished working at Creative Mornings, which if you haven't heard of Creative Mornings, it's sort of like TED, TEDx without TED. It's completely grassroots creative lectures that are hosted in more than 200 cities around the world once a month, all on the same theme each month. And it started out as a very simple idea of creative people 
hanging out in the morning before lunch in New York, watching a talk before starting work at breakfast. So they would have bagels together, have coffee together, watch a talk, and then go off into their separate lives. And when Kevin started working at Creative Mornings, it was very fledgling. There were four chapters, and he helped Creative Mornings grow from four to 104 cities. And it's now the largest in-person creative community in the world. And so when I was at IDEO, Kevin was there working from a desk and everyone was like, you need to know each other. And so people and company in many ways is, is three people who really love each other, feel like we have a very high values overlap and are trying, hoping, aspiring to answer a question which is what does it take to build a community? It's something that although a community feels magical when it shows up in your life, it doesn't come together by magic. And what we've done is sort of seen a community almost like a fire. You know, once you end up with a fire, it's sort of this metaphysical, beautiful thing. But there is a very clear order of operations of what you do first to get a fire started and how you progress from there. So we've broken it up into nine steps and just published a book uh, called Get Together with all of those nine steps broken out. So we'll get to the book Get Together in a minute. But before we do, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about people and company. So I know, you're, I mean, your ethos sounds incredible and what an, you know, an amazing mission statement for a company to have to be all about bringing people together. But can you elaborate a little bit for our audience about how exactly you guys work and, and what exactly are the services that you offer? Yeah, absolutely. So we really see ourselves the best way for to do this work. When we first formed people and company, we approached our work with clients as a very like deep embedded relationship. And I think the hunch we had was that because of all of our backgrounds, a lot of people almost wanted us to come in and sort of do the work for them. And we realized, you know, about a year in, year and a half in, that the best thing we could do was actually build capacity within an organization for people to do this themselves. Ultimately, community building is about developing leaders, whether you're building an online community, an offline community. Mm -hmm. It's about building relationships and developing people who are very passionate about your mission and about your purpose. And it just doesn't make sense for us as an external third party to come in and own those relationships. What makes sense is for us to help people establish their strategy and then start to realize it by coaching and working with the people who do the work inside each organization. So we really call ourselves coaches, almost teachers. Now we come in and spend two very deep days with any client where we get really clear on the investment, on who they're investing in, why they're investing in them. We bring in community members to get their input, to interview them, to learn from them. And then we start to work on designing what exactly that company needs to invest in next, given the state of their community and their goals. So we do a very deep dive and then we're on board with them as partners as they begin to realize the work. So the two things that I really see us doing are helping people have the clarity about how to make smarter bets with community building. I think a lot of people know that having a community would be great for their business and they have millions of ideas, but they just don't know how to prioritize them. So we come in and really help people do that. 
And then, you know, we're there to tweak, adjust, talk through the tactics as their teams build the capacity to do this themselves. So that clarity piece and then that capacity piece is how we really focus our services. And what does the dream client look like to you? Mm. Like what's the what's the best time in a company's journey to start thinking about having a formal community strategy? Yeah, I think the dream clients are two things. One is they are people that are willing to give up control. And that is because this act of community building, in many ways, I almost imagine, I don't know if this happens in Ireland, but when you're a kid in the US or when I was a kid, there were these heart locket necklaces and you would kind of break the heart locket in half. Oh and give it yeah, to your we best had friend. them as well. And I sometimes felt like at Instagram, we were breaking our little like heart locket, our brand, our sort of like platform up into a bunch of pieces and handing it out to different people to make their own, to kind of like realize and imagine Instagram themselves and to speak about it and to speak for us. And so I think it really takes a company that is willing to collaborate, trust, empower its users, its customers. And that is like the number one thing that we vet for when we're looking at clients. So just to maybe share an example of that, we spoke to the TEDx team recently and the executive director there about this decision to to invest in a distributed community for TED. They didn't have to do that. They have a great conference. They had this very well-produced experience. And I think when you look at many, many media companies, people really struggle to give up control to their audience and to their fans. It's mostly an act of writing something perfect, crystallizing it and delivering it to an audience instead of building it with them. And I asked the executive director of TEDx, you know, how did Ted decide to make this bet? And he just said, Chris Anderson, the CEO, is an incredibly trusting person. At the end of the day, he trusts people. And so that's that's a number, number one thing we look for. It doesn't matter what stage you're in as a company. That is like something that you have to, you have to trust people. And then I, I'd say the second thing is as, in terms of a dream client, we are looking for people that have super fans, super engaged users, power users, people that share the mission, the purpose of the company, so much so that they have an appetite to do more. You know, people are raising their hands to offer their time, their effort to help push this mission forward. So, you know, one one perhaps unexpected example of this is uh, Notion. So Notion is this amazing sort of like modular tool that allows people to do everything from take notes to project manage to track pipelines. It's this software that people can do tons of different things with. And I almost feel like it's quite a pragmatic software in many ways, whereas Instagram might be maybe more of an emotional one. Like there were tons of people taking photographs of things that really mattered to them. And so I was surprised to see that Notion has tons of people raising their hand to spread the gospel of Notion. They've used the tool for remarkable things, uh, things that have really changed and affected their lives. And they want to help teach other people about what they've developed and used the tool for. So they, very early on, Notion as a startup, 
had like a 60 person meetup in South Korea and this South Korean meetup community published its own book about notion best cases or best use cases. And I think that that appetite of people to help you to do more is a really, really great dream signal for us. And I just want to put a pin in that and say that if that doesn't already exist, that is what you're looking for. It doesn't mean you can't build a community. It just means start to get to know anyone who's a 10 out of 10 passionate about your product, your service, your business. Big things start small. And those folks who care, we like to say, people who care are more powerful than people who don't. And though they're sort of like the mana from heaven. When you have people like that, it's a great signal and get to know them and see if there's ways that you might be able to collaborate. So it's almost to have people who'll be willing to evangelize for you to a certain extent. Absolutely. It, it strikes me that that is the wider world. That's that's possibly quite a big ask. So have you guys ever come across a potential client that you've had to decide not to work with because just for whatever reason, you don't actually think that they could build a meaningful community around their brand? Yeah, I think one of the biggest signals is that we look for, like I said, is is mostly if people are willing and able to give up control. So mm-hmm. that's that's been the biggest block for us is just realizing, you know, this is this organization is not designed in a way that will allow them to truly collaborate with people on the outside. But if there's one thing that I have to say has surprised me about, you know, over the last 5 years, my business partners and I have interviewed, worked with hundreds of different communities. You know, we have interviewed a squirrel census in from Atlanta. Like there are is a community of potheads around this crock pot in a, that it was developed in America called the instant pot. There are people who started a cloud appreciation society. Like I said, fairly um, sort of enterprise oriented software companies like Notion have super fans. So I, I think one of the beauties of the internet is that it has helped uh, prove that if you have a passion that you care about, at the very least, there's probably some other folks out there who care about it. Is it going to grow to be millions of people? I don't, I don't know. But I do think just if you feel like you have something, a purpose that's resonant with you, there is a good likelihood that there are other people out there who might also care. I just think that purpose piece is important. You know, if you're building a business that's ultimately about you getting the biggest return and not so much about truly creating value for a customer or a user, that will probably take precedent over the purpose, over the user experience. And that's, I think, can be a challenge for if people just want some some vibrant, thriving community, but they haven't done the work to truly create a compelling purpose or create value in their product. I was very compelled on your your own website to see the squirrel one that you mentioned <laughs> and also the fact that you do do pro bono services mm. in addition to corporate clients. And I love that because it seems to go back to your sort of original mission statement and where you come from personally of wanting to to foster community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for us, I really believe that the more people who get people together, the better our personal, our personal lives will be more meaningful and fulfilled. 
And I also think our civic societies, especially democratic societies, will be more engaged. I also think there's a lot of potential for businesses who have engaged people to grow faster or grow in a more ethical way or grow in a more informed way. So I feel like this unit of people developing communities, it's something I do do professionally, but I really believe in it from a personal social to professional level. It sort of hits on all those points for me. And I know my business partners feel that way as well. And frankly, I think that businesses have a lot to learn from people who are doing this in a very grassroots way. There's a playfulness, a creativity, an instinctive nature that these very grassroots organizers bring to the design of their events, bring to their communication. Um, There's a joyfulness to it that Mm. I think businesses sometimes default into pretty professional language or highly strategic decisions. And so I feel like there's a lot of creative inspiration that we can take from things like the Star Wars fan club or, like you said, the the squirrel census Mm -hmm. or a community for Asian-American women looking for connection. And so I think there are things that businesses can learn from these grassroots groups. And I also think there are things that these grassroots groups can learn from businesses. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So let's let's talk a bit more about the book, actually, because you've touched on a couple of the incredibly diverse range of groups that you, you cover in mm. it. Um, it's published by Stripe Press. So I want to ask about that. How did that collaboration come about? Yeah, just the Stripe Press collaboration has been one of the most fortuitous things that has happened in my professional life. So they started a press that only publishes a handful of books every year. And we began to write this book kind of at first thinking it would be just a very short thing. Maybe we would, you know, design it ourselves, distribute it ourselves, just because we got so many people curious about the how of community building. And we wanted to give them the tools they needed to understand 
what to do first, what questions to ask themselves to get there, what next, and so on. And so we kind of wrote the book and had it had it ready and shared it with some friends as sort of a manuscript, thinking, you know, just we wanted feedback from them, more on the content. And what came back to us was actually a few offers from publishing houses to publish the book. And so we sort of opened our mind and said, well, maybe we should look into this route. And I think just hadn't really imagined ourselves as authors. We thought maybe it was an identity or a type mm. of person that wasn't us. And, and so we began to question that assumption and have conversations. And one of those conversations that we had was with a woman named Brianna Wolfson, who just left Stripe Press, but she was really responsible for starting it, making it, you know, from, from nothing, there are no books to creating the deal with the first author, um, designing the first book, distributing the first book, which was Elad Gill's high growth handbook. And I met with Brianna and Brianna had actually published her own fiction book with a major publisher and then had had this experience of building Stripe Press from the ground up. So it was more really to learn about, about what she already knew about the publishing industry and what she would recommend to us. And by the end of our conversation, she asked me if I thought Stripe Press would want to publish the book. And I, I gave her the manuscript to see what she thought and she then offered us a publishing deal. And they, compared to what we knew about other publishers, give the design of the book so much attention. And the physicality of a book is really what makes it a book, in my opinion. You know, so many things are web pages that may disappear, or you'll reload and it'll be gone. But to have a beautiful object out of, uh, as a book, I think was such, was so exciting to us. And that was something that Stripe could offer us that no one else could, could quite match. That's fantastic. It is actually something that I was going to say to you is how particularly beautiful looking the book is. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous design. So to, aside from the personal stories in the book, I think it's probably important at this point for our audience to kind of let them know that it is actually very much a how-to yes, and how to build a community. So how have you gone about condensing all of these kind of quirky and some of them very individual or personal stories into such a practically applicable resource? Yeah. Well, I would say that there is no magic way to do that outside no. of time and drafting and redrafting and hard conversations, much of what our original sketch of what key points we needed to make in this book were originally formed by a framework that we developed to educate our clients on what the heck we mean when we talk about how to build a community there's just so much ambiguity in the space that we felt like with each client, we needed to show them what we meant about the investments that it takes to take a community from nothing to, you know, a global chapter community or something that reaches people all around the world. So we would present this sort of like multi-step framework we had developed when we started with any, any client. And we use our existing research and our personal experiences to create that framework. And then as we began to write, we made an aggressive effort to speak to tons more people 
So this is also part of, you know, why we do pro bono work is it doesn't just help the world. It also helps us get smarter. So one way in particular, we've met tons of communities is my business partner, Kevin, has coached over a hundred communities this year. He at one point took a meeting once a day, once a week. Um, So five meetings a week for an hour with a different grassroots community. And I think some of that comes from him. He went to Berkeley and got an undergrad mechanical engineering degree, graduated at the top of his class, and then got a master's degree in mechanical engineering. So he brings this very structure, process, precision brain, logic brain to thinking about people. And that has really, he, his brain in particular, has just really helped us um, kind of kind of build these step-by-step frameworks, pressure test them, and make sure that we have a ton of clarity and certainty in what we are recommending to people at any stage of building a community. Brilliant. And to go back specifically to our audience, yeah. they're predominantly internet-first or tech-based companies. So if you had one piece of advice from the book that you could give to companies like this, what would it be? Yeah, The difference about investing in a community versus other things you might do is that investing in a community is about building with people, not for them. Traditionally, people have used this term community management. And in our opinion, building a community is not about management. It is about developing leaders. And it's really about finding these people who care and understanding their motivations and how you might collaborate with one another and eventually turning them into leaders. I think the the thing that I've seen across internet companies, in particular platforms, things from, you know, online marketplaces to creative social media platforms that I always find myself wanting to underscore to people is the power of role modeling behavior. When I began to research other online communities, I I spoke to the first community manager at YouTube, at SoundCloud, at Medium. I just spoke to community manager at Twitch. I've spoken to Notion. I've, I've really tried to learn as much as I can about different online communities and how they function. Almost universally, people put exceptional contributions, exceptional users, exceptional customers up on a platform, up on a pedestal so that other people can see what good behavior looks like or what success looks like. And that's something that happens across community building in all stripes. But if you don't do that, if you don't differentiate and create standards or aspirational use cases, people are left to guess and I've just found that that piece is is so, so important. Um, it's finding people that are really exceptional and, and making them into role models. Um, so I'll say that. And I think just the final thing is some software, some internet companies are themselves a communication platform and some are not. And it is really important as an organizer, if you do have passionate people, to figure out a way that they can speak to each other directly, independent of you. You are not the bottleneck. 
So before we wrap up, normally at this point in the interview, we would tend to ask people who the business leader that they most aspire to would be. But actually with you, I think I'd like to know of all the communities that you have come across, what has been the one that's spoken to you most or that you found the most compelling? Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the best parts about this this work, writing this book, has been meeting, <laughs> meeting I'm sure. so many people who are organizing people. And I've, I've met so many that I respect and admire. Um, but I, I suppose like the answer for me is, is I'll just give, make it a personal one. Um, I moved to New York a year and a half ago and I really wanted to make more friends and I found this team, which I I mentioned a little bit earlier, called Downtown Girls Basketball. It is a team for women who are specifically bad at basketball. And I have cleared my calendar. No matter what, nothing takes over my Tuesday night. I always go to Downtown Girls Basketball. And there's just something very different about playing sports with people when it's not about winning and it's not about competing, it's about having fun. And just doing this one thing once a week, no matter what, has completely altered my experience of New York City and my sense of my social foundation and my rootedness here. So lastly, Bailey, before I let you go, where can people keep up with your work? Yeah, the best way is our our website. So if you go to peopleand.company, you can sign up for our email list. You'll find our book there, our podcast there. And also if you're interested in uh, inquiring about services that we offer, whether it's pro bono or bringing us on to help you with your community strategy, you can find our contact information there. Super. Well, look, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you today and finding out all about the book. We'll link to all of that in our blog. So thanks a million, Bailey. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom. Inside Intercom.